the the good news kind of mantra and, and gospel from culture is that um, we're individuals who have freedom and liberty to choose whatever path we want to live and we celebrate that in a lot of ways that we looked at this a few a few months ago actually before Christmas the the way that, that we exist as 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 humanity in Western society is is to celebrate the individual and to kind of elevate the individual above everything else and so you can you can live your life wherever wherever way you want to at whatever cost and it doesn't matter if kind of people get put down and and pushed to the side along the way as long as you're happy and as long as you're living your best life now that is that is living and the result of, of kind of promoting individualism and we do that from a really young age as well that we want kids to kind of think about their own kind of self-esteem and self-help and all those sorts of things and even just the language that we use as a culture just really narrows our thinking down into individualistic thinking and the result of that is that we then start to view everything in life through our individual desires, our individual needs, our individual comforts and what it means for us to develop as as individuals. And the reality for us as Christians and believers is that we've been saved out of that. We've been saved out of having to and just think of the weight that it is to carry of promoting yourself in a world where everyone else is trying to promote themselves as well. We've been saved out of the weight and the slavery of that, which is what Paul was talking about there in, in chapter seven. But the other reality is, is that we still wrestle with some of that. At the moment we're saved, we're not kind of put into, into little um, kind of balls of cotton wool with, with um, earphones on and we just don't know what's going on in culture around us and nothing from culture affects us. The reality is, is that we still wrestle with a lot of that. We wrestle with, with the culture speaking in one ear and, um, and the gospel speaking in, in another ear. And, and the, 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 the place that kind of come, comes into conflict, particularly on that, that thought of individualism, is that we have, as Christians have been called into community. A community that is self-sacrificing. A community that, so what is the greatest commandment? To love God and to love others. And actually culture says, no, the greatest commandment is to love, love yourself. Like that is the greatest thing that you can do. And so the gospel kind of comes into direct collision with, with cultural thinking and says, no, 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 no. True living and true freedom and true liberty and true flourishing looks like denying yourself, sacrificing yourself. Laying your life down for the sake of others. As Christians, we have a real tension, difficulty of knowing that, that in our new creation with, with our new flesh and the new desires which God has given us, we want that and we, and we strive for that. But at the same time, we're trying to put to death the old man and our old ways of living that say, no, you come first. Promote yourself first. And so because of that tension and because of that kind of collision course that the gospel brings, um, the Christian life becomes really messy, doesn't it? And we know that just from kind of our own lives, even things this week that we've been struggling with and, and, um, and wrestling with. But the Christian life is, is, a, is a messy life because the gospel brings a collision between broken ways of thinking and living and a, a better way of living that comes with the gospel. And then what happens when we're saved and we look at this a few weeks ago when we're looking at missional churches we're not saved kind of to be on our own but we're saved into community so we're saved into a body of people and so 
all this that, that happens. We were talking about this the other day. We were doing marriage prep with, um, with with Johnny and Claire, and we said that the thing that happens when when people get married is basically you bring two sinners on under one house, and it's just. In one sense, a recipe for disaster because you're just multiplying the the atmosphere of sin and rebellion when two people come together and people think our oh, marriage is going to be just make life so much easier and I won't have all these kind of desires and things. But actually, it is just a collision course of two people coming together. And in the same way, in a church, you have lots of these individuals who are trying to work out what it looks like to live Christian lives, to live lives which. Um, are sacrificing and loving one another and loving God and at the same time wrestling with all everything that culture's trying to pull them away from that and saying no live for yourself and you just lump all these people in one pot in the church and so what you have in churches in churches who are honest about who they are and a lot of churches aren't but with churches who are honest about who they are what you have is mess you have lots of Christians coming together who were who were trying to walk through that tension and wrestling with the old man and the new creation and it creates a messy church. And that's the the very thing that Paul, the Apostle Paul, is writing to address in, in the uh, book of one Corinthians. And Paul is writing specifically to this young church and because he's heard about the struggles and the tensions that are going on that people are trying to live Christian lives but get messed up and, and mixed up with old ways of living and so Paul hears these struggles and wants to write to them to address them and, and to, to instruct them and to lead them to a better way of living and this kind of starts right back in, in Acts chapter 18 so we're just going to read that just really helpful context if you just flip there we're going to read um, half of the chapter together. So this is the, the kind of start of the church in Corinth. We're going to read verses 1 to 18. We got it? Yeah, okay. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. He found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man called Titius Justus, a worshipper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, who believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptised. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in the city who are my people. And he strayed a year, he didn't stray, he <laughs> stayed a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. Let's just pray before we carry on. Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you that it is true, that it is effective. Um, we thank you for the story of this young church starting and the struggles that they faced, but the hope that they had a God and we have a God who loves them, who cares for them and who desires for them to live in a more excellent way. 
Father, we pray that by your spirit you would lead us now, that you would help us to see truth, believe it, and follow it. And we ask that in your name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so here's what we see in, in Acts chapter 18. That Paul arrives in this city of Corinth. And this is kind of, if you, if you know about Paul's life and his, his calling as a missionary, this was his second missionary journey. Um, so he, he arrives in Corinth after spending some time in, in Athens and, and modern day Corinth would be just kind of 50 miles or so from Athens in, in Greece. So Paul arrives in Corinth and, and the first thing he does is he goes to the synagogues. So Paul's kind of calling up to that point was, was he had a heart for his own people, he had a heart for the Jews. And so the first place that he would always go when he lands on these missionary journeys was the synagogue. So he lands in the synagogue. And he, and he shares the gospel with the Jews and his desire is for them to hear the truth of the gospel, to, to repent of, of, of the, the religious ways that are blinding them from seeing the truth of who Jesus is and to turn to him. But instead, what happens that we see in chapter 18, he goes to the synagogue, he preaches the gospel and he's rejected. And they revile him and they don't want to hear what he has to say. And so Paul turns to them in verse 6 and he says, okay, your blood be on your own heads. If you don't want to hear this then that's 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 up to you i've given you i've laid out the the truth of who god is you know what you need to do to be saved and if you're not going to follow that then your blood be on your your own heads i am innocent and then at that point he, he turns and he says okay i'm going to the gentiles these people who who have no understanding of who god is who don't know what the promises of god are i'm going to turn to them and, and invite them in to the kingdom so that's what he does he goes and he preaches to the Gentiles and he goes literally next door to the house of a, a guy called Titus Justus. You can imagine the picture, he has this this kind of Barney with the, with the guys in the synagogue. He says, right, I'm going to the, the Gentiles and you can kind of imagine him packing his bag and getting ready to, to go off and find the Gentiles and literally just takes a right and goes next door to the house of this guy, Justus, a Westboro guard, lived next door to the synagogue. And the ruler of the synagogue, Christmas, becomes a Christian. And his whole household become Christians. That's kind of the pattern that we see of, of Paul landing in new cities where the gospel hasn't been preached. And he preaches it, he lays out, and, and he sees people saved. People from Jewish background and here people from Gentile background. And what you see is you kind of go through the rest of the chapter. Is that many more people in Corinth believe the gospel and are saved. Jesus comes to, to Paul in a dream and, and speaks to him through a vision. And this is what Jesus says. He says, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many people in this city who are my people. So Paul has this hope that actually his work isn't finished. So he sticks around for, for 18 months because he knows that there's still a work to be done. There are still people to be saved. And that's what he sees. He sees the church grow. He sees a church planted in Corinth and that church then begins to grow. So just a bit about, about Corinth, which is, is really fundamental context as we as we read through this book together and can can I encourage you as well, kind of speaking to people who are in our kind of core team and closer in. Can you make a real effort to read read the whole book? Kind of fifteen chapters. That's kind of like two and a bit chapters a day, which is doable. If we can try and read that before next week and at the, the very latest, the week after when we launch, I think it'd be really helpful as people are kind of leading other people in the church and God willing, they're going to be having conversations 
over the next 12 months that are, are stemming from, from 1 Corinthians as we preach it and we teach it and we pray through it and we, and we go through gospel communities kind of stuck and focused in this book it'd be great if we know it well so can you just take take a bit of time a bit of effort just to give a bit of time each day this week or, or if you do it in one block just sit and read it and just, just get your head into it and get kind of um, excited about it as well but just yeah a bit of context about this city in Corinth so as I said it's near modern day Athens in Greece and in the first century so 2000 years or so ago Corinth was one of the most important cities um, in, in the world at the time certainly one of the most important cities in, in the Roman province so it was the capital of a province called Achaia and what you found in, in Corinth was that it was slap bang in the middle of, of two trade routes. So you had a trade route in the world from east to west, kind of all the goods and food in, in the east, kind of traveling um, through different routes to the west. And you also had one north to south as well. So kind of stuff coming from the north to south and vice versa. And right in the middle of these two trade routes was Corinth. So you imagine kind of it being just this bustling place of all different cultures and, and, and smells and colors and people of all different backgrounds and religions and races all colliding in this, in this kind of central city in uh, Corinth. Coupled with that kind of being just like this, this intersection was that it was a port city. So it was kind of on a peninsula or still is in a, in a peninsula in Greece. And you know, kind of with ports, the, okay, you've got this kind of trade route cutting across there, and then you've got all these ships and people coming into the city and bringing new cultures from different parts of the world and people getting on those ships and taking culture from Corinth to other parts of the world. Fascinating place, really just, just a pivotal city. And, and in a lot of ways, kind of like us. So Liverpool, historically, a port city, a place where where culture from other parts of the world would land into Britain. And this would be the first place that people would get a smell and a sense of what's going on in the rest of the British Empire. And it was a really important and pivotal city for, for trade and for business. And as a result of all that, it was a prosperous city. So the people who lived in Corinth had, had a lot of wealth, had a lot of prestige, a lot of, a lot of money. The people would move in there to get a, to get a piece of the pie because it was a place that people were, could, could make money. Culturally, it was a melting pot, and that's kind of just, we always say that about this place as well, just a real melting pot of all different kinds of people. It promoted a lot of culture across the empire as well. So the Olympic Games held every four years. On the other um, intervening years, they had um, the Isthmian Games, something like that, <coughs> Isthmian Games, which again were kind of like the Olympic Games, but, but kind of faced, um, centered around music and, and athletics. So you had all these people kind of piling into the city as well for, 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 for this big event, which, which was famous across the empire. And here's the other really important thing to pick up on Corinth, and you get this page after page as you go through um, the Book of 1 Corinthians. It was infamous, it was famous across the empire as being a place where you could go and indulge in liberal culture. There was something about Corinth that, that it was kind of like no rules. Whatever you wanted to do, you kind of take that mandate of culture to live for yourself and promote yourself, and they took it to the extreme. And if you wanted to indulge in, in your own desires, then you would, you would go to Corinth. And that was a place that was known across the empire as being a place with liberal values and an extreme, extremely 
liberal culture to the point where the vocabulary across the empire picked up on things in Corinth. So, so if you were describing a place that had kind of um, extreme licentiousness, a place in the empire that was just gone, gone to, gone to the dogs in terms of its rules and its and its um, kind of conservative values, you would say it's it's like old Corinth. That's how you describe it. If you if you were kind of had a philosophical pretentiousness about the way you were speaking and you were kind of speaking to someone who was kind of aloof and above everyone else, people would say, "Oh, you're just using Corinthian words." If someone's life had got so far out of control that that they, it was almost like they'd hand themselves over to, to the devil, people would say that that person had been Corinthianized. So this place had a real label, and it was known to be a place that that was was liberal. Um, easy living where you could just live out your own desires and there'd be no consequences and people wouldn't bat an eyelid then right in the middle of that culture Paul comes in Acts chapter 18 people are saved and a church is planted and this church kind of starts off growing predominantly with with Gentile people people have no idea no concept of, of God before they are saved they don't know what the promises of God are they don't understand all the rules and the commandments to to live holy lives they just come into contact with the truth of who Jesus is and they're, 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 they're transformed by it and they're converted but they're still living in this city which is promoting the individual and saying live out your own desires so you see the tension there that you have these people who are now seeking to, to live for Jesus and love people sacrificially and, and live in unity with them colliding with this culture of of thinking that was ingrained into their minds, ingrained into their psyche, that, that they should just be living for self. And so this is where the wrestle comes from in First Corinthians. This is where the tension of kind of trying to live as a Christian, but then all this kind of weird stuff going on in the background. And so people are becoming Christians, but there's irregularities in the conduct of, of a lot of these believers. That in a lot of ways, Corinthian culture was invading into the church. In a bad way and so Paul writes this letter to them and um, kind of flick, flick forward to um, one thing we're just going to kind of look at a couple of verses together again just to build a bit of context here because Paul writes this letter we know it's Paul who writes it it's clear that it's Paul who writes it he tells us that in verse 1 of chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians but kind of if you read through the book of Acts and read through a few different letters you see that Paul probably visited Corinth on three different occasions. So he went to visit this church three different times. He loves for them, he cares for them, he, he wants, wants the best for them. And this letter that we have here, even though it's called 1 Corinthians, um, this is probably the second letter that Paul writes to them. So we think there are probably four letters in total that, that Paul writes to, to the church in Corinth. So we've only got two here, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. And that gives you a sense of kind of how much Paul loved these people. He spends 18 months with them on his, on his, um, his first visit in the, in the book of in, in Acts 18, where he, he writes to them. I think about how busy Paul is and all these different churches that he's trying to keep going, all these different leaders that he's trying to equip. But he takes the time out specifically to pour into this, this church in Corinth, which he, he knows are struggling. They're a young church. They're getting confused with things. And so he takes the time to write to them at least four different times so two of those letters we have here and two we don't so if you can flick to chapter 5 verse 9 um, 
chapter 5, verse 9. This is Paul writing to the church and he says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. So there we kind of, we know that Paul's already written to them. So although this is called 1 Corinthians, there's a letter which precedes the letter that we read here, which we haven't got, but we kind of take for granted that the, there was another letter that came before this one. And we kind of think with this letter that he's writing here, he wrote this while he was with the church in Ephesus. So he was in Ephesus for three years. And we think that he kind of wrote back to them during that time. So not only did Paul write to, to the church in Corinth, but people were writing to him as well. So again, just to get, give you a picture of what's going on here, I think sometimes we can kind of read books of the Bible, books of the Bible and kind of cleanse ourselves from any context and just think this is God speaking to us, and it is. Well, this is like responding to a specific situation as well, and I think it just brings a bit of reality to it, that this is a real letter which Paul wrote to real people who were struggling with real issues. And people were concerned about what was going on in the church, and so they were writing to him. So click back to chapter 1, verse 11. Um, chapter 1, verse 11. So this is what Paul says again. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. So this lady, Chloe, must be a member of the church or someone associated with the church, is concerned about things that are going on, things that she's seen in the church. And so she... She reports back to Paul. She writes to Paul or she gets her people to write to Paul to tell him that things are going in this. Flick forward again. Sorry, there's a lot of flicking here. To chapter 5, verse 1. Paul says it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. So again, he's hearing reports from somewhere. People are writing to him, communicating to, to him that there's issues of sexual immorality. Chapter 7, verse 1. Now, concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. So, so Paul's writing in direct response to a question which has been written to him about issues around marriage. And then last one, chapter 11, verse 18. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. So again, he's hearing different things. People are, are concerned about the things that are going on in Corinth. They're picking up their pen, they're writing to him and saying, we need help. And Paul, in his love for the church, picks up his pen and writes 15 chapters back to them, addressing all of their issues, all of their problems, in a hope that they would be conformed more into the image of who Jesus is. So what's the content of this letter? Um, in a minute, we're just going to kind of do a, a whistle-stop tour through it. But Paul is writing specifically to address specific issues of the time. So he, he, he tackles celebrity worship. He, he comes down on division and grievances. He talks about sexual immorality, church discipline, struggles, misunderstandings regarding marriage, misunderstandings regarding singleness, misunderstandings regarding sex. There was issues of idolatry. There was lack of reverence. There was lack of order and worship when the church was coming and gathering together. There was a misuse of spiritual gifts. And there was a misunderstanding of the power of the gospel at work in the individual's lives to save. And Paul addresses all of those things. You kind of read that list and you think, flipping out, like this church was messed up. It's important to remember, <coughs> flip back to chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 1. Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ, Jesus and our brother Sosthenes and this is who Paul's writing to to the church of God that is in Corinth to those sanctified in Christ Jesus called to be saints together 
with all of those who are in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. So you read that list of issues that Paul's writing to address in the church, and you kind of think, who are these people? And you read in chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, these people are Christians. They say, like, you don't call someone the church of God, sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. People who, who have the name of Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, people who call Jesus Lord. You don't call those people those things unless they are actually Christians. Paul believes that these people are saved. He believes that they are believers. He believes that they are the church. He believes that they are the Christians and still they're struggling with these issues. That should give us hope. There's an expectation that the moment we're saved, we're, we're called into a community which is perfect and without a defect. That's rubbish. We're called into a community of believers who wrestle with the flesh, who, who desire to put that, that, that flesh to death, but live in the reality of it. And we're slowly moving away from that. And here's what Paul wants to do as well. Can, again, you, you kind of listen to that list of issues there and you think maybe you should just tell them just, to, just run away from it all just kind of go and lock yourself in that box with cotton wool and just protect yourself from that culture because it's, it's too bad for you instead what you see Paul do and this is a phrase that Steve uses a lot because he's stolen it from the guys in, in, um, in Oklahoma but this is what Paul does he calls the church to run to the sound of the guns have you heard him say that before? run to the sound of the guns and what what we mean by that is a good commander in an army when they're kind of getting ready to battle when they hear the sound of the guns what sort of leader would he be if he said alright boys let's go and hide in the trenches and, and, and kind of defend ourselves and, 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 and just protect ourselves what kind of a leader would that be Actually, a good military commander says, no, we run to the sound of the guns. We, we, we run towards the war. We run towards the battle because we want to engage in it. Not so that we can get messed up and taken over by it, but with a hope and a view that we will command a victory over it. Mm-hmm. And that's what Paul does in the book of 1 Corinthians. He doesn't say to the church, run for your lives, guys. This is going to kill you. He says, no, run towards it. Engage in it and command a victory over it through the power of the gospel. And that is what we're going to see. I'm really excited about the next 12 months because we're going to see kind of mess come to the surface. I believe that we will, even in the, just the number that we have in our church now, but others that God will call into this. We're going to see a real church engaging in real mess, not pretending it's not there, but running towards it in the hope that we engage with it and command a victory. So just before we kind of close, to set the stall for how we're going to go in the next 12 months, um, I just want us to look really quickly at what the structure is of 1 Corinthians and the specific things that we're going to go through um, over the next year. And what you see whenever Paul kind of comes into, into, um, into the context of understanding what the issue is that he needs to address, what he does every time he defines the problem, he tries to understand what the problem is, and then he brings the gospel in to teach them and show them that the power for holiness, the power for unity, the power for love is found in the gospel and the gospel alone as the spirit works through it. The power for holiness, unity and love is found in the gospel. That is his remedy to the sickness that he sees in the church in Corinth. In Corinth. Holiness, unity and love. There are three themes that you're going to see throughout the, the book as you walk through this, this year. Holiness, unity and love. 
And this is kind of how, how it breaks down. So we're just going to kind of race through the chapters here and just see how Paul breaks it down. There's kind of five or six core topics that, that he works through. And the first one is this. In chapters one to four, he looks at division in the church. So he hears reports of, of cliques in Corinth, of kind of people kind of separating themselves out, out into, into different groups. And he addresses that head on. He says... He says there's, there's celebrity worship in there that some people are following Apollos, some people are, are following different people, kind of elevating them up to a place where they shouldn't be. And he says, no, 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 the, the only one that we boast in is Christ. And we don't need to kind of get into little groups and kind of elevate each other above each other and, and boast in the different things. The only one that we boast in is in Christ. He encourages them that they're going to see growth, but the growth doesn't come through man-made efforts. It comes through God. He talks a lot about leadership in, in the first four chapters, and he says, leaders who last will be laughed at and seen as fools. But they are fools for Christ. And he encourages towards a godly view of leadership. In chapters five to seven, Paul looks at sex and relationships. And he says that the, the grace and, and, and love of, of the church is that when these things go awry, we will discipline you but in a loving and gentle way. He goes straight in for, for the detail and he, and, he, and, he, and he talks about you know what sex is and what it isn't. He says sex ultimately isn't about sex. There's a bigger picture going on here and he elevates it to be the good gift that God has made it to be. He talks about the beauty of marriage. He talks about within the, 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 the picture of marriage that we, that we see selfless sex and selfless commitment. He goes really specific and talks about the pain and 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 um, and consequences of divorce. He talks about living with unbelieving spouses, and he talks about the divine calling of being unmarried. He goes through almost every kind of category of of relationship and an area of struggle with with sex and relationships, and brings the gospel to bear in chapters five to seven. Chapters 8 to 10, he talks about food and freedom. That, that he, he, remember, he's talking specifically to, to Gentiles, but there are other Jews that are coming in as well who have, who have certain rules and won't kind of uh, eat certain foods and won't go to certain things. And, and Paul calls this church and says, you've been, you've been brought into this new life with a freedom. But that freedom comes with sensitivity as well. That you are free to indulge in, in all manner of things, but you're also free to restrict that freedom that you're free to to hold back on certain things for the good of others he says that you're free to serve everyone in a hope that all might be saved and he says that you are free to live for the glory of god and the good of others in the next section um, chapters 11 to 14 he goes very specific about the gathering, about what it looks like when the church comes together. What does a healthy church gathering look like? What does healthy church leadership look like? What does healthy living in the home look like? And he goes in and, and lays out what biblical manhood and womanhood looks like. He shows us what, what healthy worship in the church looks like. So he picks on, on, on specific issues that have happened in Corinth. And, and tells them that, that these things are wrong and actually brings them to a better place and shows them what a better way to gather and worship under God looks like. He talks about spiritual gifts and he talks about these things not being there to, for us to boast in ourselves and to elevate ourselves. Again, again, the culture is telling us that if you have this unique gift and this, this unique ability, then that's to celebrate you and to raise and elevate yourself above the rest of, 
of the people. Actually, Paul comes in and says, no, these spiritual gifts are there for the edification and the building of the church. And we're going to spend weeks on their own looking through the gift of tongues, the gift of healing, the gift of prophecy, and what that means and what that looks like for us as a church as well. Um, chapter 15 kind of spends a whole chapter looking at the resurrections. This is a section on its own, kind of looking at uh, what the resurrection means, giving us a hope of a future resurrection, giving us a hope that this body that we have here isn't the body that we will keep forever, that is broken and, and marred with sin, but one day we will have a resurrection body. And in light of that, hold fast to what is important now. Hold fast to what is important because there is a future coming where everything will be made new. And in that future, we will have a victory over death and sin. And the final section in chapter 16, 16 um, getting carried away there, aren't I? That was another. That was another section. In chapter sixteen. Um, it gives final greetings to the church, <coughs> and he lays out in that chapter what true, authentic, sacrificial <coughs> gospel community looks like. How we serve one another. He says that everything we do as a community, let that be done in love. That's what he calls us to. The hinge through the whole book is chapter 12, verse 31. You have the, the culture promoting this, this way of easy living, this liberal culture, this, this ideology that says put yourself first, promote yourself. That is what, what freedom and liberty and flourishing as a human looks like. And Paul comes in chapter 12, verse 1 and says, let me show you a more excellent way. Let me show you the way that the gospel comes to bear on all of these issues and shows you what true freedom and true liberty looks like. Let me show you a more excellent way. Paul's main concern is that he wants this church to be a church that is united, that is holy and is displaying love. Paul is, is, is zealous for, the, for, for, for them as individuals to live holy lives, but, but more than that, he's zealous for the church. He wants the church to be what it is called to be. And we've looked at this so much over the last few months that the church is called not to be just a, a, a holy huddle of people but a people that truly reflect the unity that you see in God the holiness that you see in God and the love that God displays to his people that is what we are here to be remember we said that the church is a hermeneutic of the gospel that if people want to understand what God's character is like where do they go in the world? the church the church is there to evidence and mirror and display and to showcase God to the world it is the way that the world makes sense of who God is and so Paul is zealous and 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 energetic about making sure that the church operates in the way it should do that they show unity that they show holiness and they display love the character of the church is to reflect the character of God that we are called to be united because God is one God is united in in the three persons of the trinity and to say that he isn't is a lie. And so we reflect that he is in our unity that we have together. We show that God is one, that God is united in the way that we love one another and sacrifice one another and show real unity to one another. We're called to be holy because God is holy. And because in Christ we have been made holy too. And so we live in light of a holy God and we reflect that holiness to the world around us so that they can see God as holy. They can see him as pure. They can see him as one who loves to indulge in, in things that are fruitful and flourishing, not in things of the flesh, which is ultimately going to kill us. 
And we are called to love because God is love and God is loving. And if we treat people unlovingly, if we don't engage in people with love, if we don't kind of reach out to the people in society and on the margins who no one else will love, what does that show society of who God is? And so we love well because we have been loved well by God. So finally, why do we want to study this book? Because we want liberty to be a a community of people who, who desire holiness, who have real unity with one another and live out God's love in a way that shows people the fullness of the character of God. God willing, we're going to be engaging with non-believers over the next 12 months. That's our hope and our prayer that people will come into our community and, and they won't have an understanding, they won't have a, a, a ground of who God is, they won't understand the promises of God, they don't have um, an understanding of all the, the, the rules and the commands that God gives us to walk in, in holiness and obedience. The hope is, is that they see a church who are messy, who are engaging in all of the difficulties of life, who are, who are, who are trying to relieve themselves of the burden that, that, that culture and society puts on them to, to live a certain way. But people who have found a hope that there is a more excellent way. And that hope is found in the truth of the gospel, that Jesus is who he says he is. That he is holy, that he is united with God the Father and God the Spirit and he is love and that we display that to them as we work through the mess and navigate our way through towards holiness, towards love, towards unity as we find out what that more excellent way looks like.